0: Welcome to Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast that would like to remind you that anyone who says that the pilgrims came to the New World for freedom of religion is either historically illiterate or lying to you for their own purposes. All right, guys, so uh, I've got a guest for you this month uh, this is our guest episode for the month and uh today we're talking to elena you want to introduce yourself sure. uh, my name is elena bowman i
1: am a researcher writer at columbia university i also have um, a couple of degrees because i'm old and uh, i find that one or two degrees is a little bit useless. Uh, One of those situations where um, the more you learn about a given topic, the more you understand that you have so much more to learn. Uh, And so we are here. I am the author of three different uh, high school textbooks and so that's partly what we're here to discuss is um, the history of the Puritans and how we're still seeing them uh, as as really primary influences in American culture 400 years on still dealing with these guys
0: yeah and it's not necessarily in a good way yeah not not not, (laughs) generally speaking not in a good way i've got a few episodes already on the podcast about the puritans which everybody uh you may have listened to them or not listened to them at this point but if you haven't they're mostly back in season one of the of the podcast uh i've got an episode on the witch trials which spends a little bit of time on the puritan witch trials but also the european ones and also, of course, I've got episodes on the first Thanksgiving and, and some other information about the early Puritans and how they influenced the beginnings of of American culture. Uh, but they have, you know, obviously they had a huge impact. There were multi- many of the original thirteen colonies were Puritan colonies that were based on that. We've got Massachusetts, Connecticut, all of these were Puritan run <clears throat> Puritan run communities and colonies, and that's gonna have a major impact on the way that we, you know the way that America is formed and uh, it's going to have a major cultural element. Yeah,
1: and and I think it's also worth noting, uh, first of all, that when we first got together to sort of start talking about this, uh, we put together some notes in a document and just sort of uh, you know like farted around a little bit about concepts, and uh, we talked for three and a half hours the last time we had a meeting about this. That is to say that um, their li- their their scope is not limited. Their scope is is almost infinite in American culture and and frankly Western European culture. Although um, the Puritans were large largely um, reactionary against the current, um, uh, well, I should say their contemporary Western culture, Um, but their presence is still absolutely keenly felt. Um, We see it particularly in our brand of uh, consumerism capitalism, and uh, particularly um, these days in the self-care community, um, which is uh, certainly something that we want to address later on.
0: Yeah, so when we start off by talking a little bit about what the Puritans are and kind of how, uh, you know, how we should look at them in the context of, of history. Uh, I always like to say that there are separatists and then there are separatists uh, because <laughs> you've kind of got, you've kind of got a, section of like three different separatist groups during this period of time. They all come from the same Puritan line, uh, which I think I've mentioned this in an earlier episode, but they all come from the same group in England, where you have these, these, you know, these Puritans who are pulling away from the Church of England. They think the Church of England is still too, uh, you know, still too Much like the Catholic Church they're too they're they're too indulgent they're too they they like fancy things too much there's too many rules and and dogma between you and God all of that. And so you have this group, and they kind of make everything miserable for everybody for a while, uh, because they're not really happy. Letting other people believe what they want to believe, they want everybody to be a puritan. Oh, it's, it's almost like there are there are parallels to contemporary America. Almost. almost, it's very strange. So then you have a group of these these puritans who are being too that the, the king is admittedly that the, the 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 England is admittedly kind of oppressing them. I'm not going to say they weren't, and so you have a lot of them who decide they're going to leave, uh, but contrary to popular opinion, they did not leave for America, they left for for Holland, because the Netherlands is one of the only countries at that time that has actively a a law on the books, allowing freedom of religion at the time, which made them a very open society, they had, they still had some problems with Catholics, but after the Spanish Inquisition, everybody had some problems with the Catholics, let's be fair here, Um, but they allowed, you know, Jewish people, Protestants, Puritans, everyone to practice their beliefs. So you get this huge section of them moving into Leiden, which is my old stomping grounds in grad school. Uh, And then you have that group who pretty much stays there except for a very tiny splinter group of them who decide that Holland is too too progressive for them, right? They're worried about the fact that Holland allows people to believe anything they want. And so that's who become the pilgrims. Uh, who then head off to America because the only way that they can handle society right is to be "Mm, we're going to protect our children from from outside influence and things like that by so basically, basically American fundamentalism and the homeschooling community in the 1990s. So yes, yeah, <laughs> the Duggars, right? It's the Duggars, except in the 1600s. That's essentially it, and that's how I usually explain it to my students, uh, because there's, you know, there's it, it's several breakoff groups, it's splinter groups uh, that get progressively more regressive. I guess, um, Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, it's it's crucial that we first identify these mysterious Puritans. Um, and yes, you're correct that there are separatists and then there are separatists. Um, I mean, we've all heard the word puritanical used as a pejorative, right? Um, it usually indicates like someone who's really uptight and aesthetic and, um, you know, wears colorless clothing and a scowl and a funny hat with buckles. And um, while I do love Charles Schultz and Charlie Brown, I did go back and revisit the Thanksgiving special. and found myself just like my heart sank a little bit because there's that like white nostalgia of I really wish this is how things worked uh it is not um having said that it is still a narrative that we're really dedicated to uh in this country we have collectively bought into the fairy tale and that's partly because uh, well, for many reasons, but partly because we're anti-intellectual and we're anti-history, um, just in general in this country, because being historically accurate would require us to negotiate with national sin. And we're not always
0: willing to do that. Right. We're not so, comfortable with um, the problem sorry. of our past
1: right right so um you know the puritans it indicates a time where you know women had no rights outside the home children were meant to be seen and not heard but that's also an overly simplistic dis- uh description the puritans played games and sang songs and made special recipes that they passed down from uh you know mother to daughter um they read together they did refuse to observe christmas which is funny given that it's the 23rd of december today i fi- find that that's uh, an interesting um you know maybe uh connective tissue there that we um they regarded Christmas as too secular and too pagan and frankly too jolly. Uh, but they were also the instigators of the Thanksgiving feast, which of course did not go down the way that you and I and Norman Rockwell were taught that exactly, it yeah. but there is a logical balance between the stereotypes. So before we can really begin to approach the Puritans as an entity unto themselves, we had to understand a little bit more about the Anglican church. Um, which was um, essentially a pseudo-religious organization, but was far more interested in politicking proper. Um, of course, the Anglican Church emerged out of uh, King Henry the Eighth uh, and his multiple wives and his desire to get a divorce, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, the Anglican Church was seen as largely um, the let's let's call it maybe the expression of indulgence maybe religious and theocratic indulgence where um you know we had a king who was very wealthy and wanted his own way and so we created new rules around him to um to yeah satisfy him
0: right because uh, it, this is during the per- period of the reformation anyway you've got this reformation going on in europe and i've always viewed it as being like king henry's like you know mm-hmm. that's a cool idea i don't have to listen to yeah. catholic church anymore that seemed that's so right. smart. I'm gonna do. A, I'm gonna do that myself. But of course, he's not doing it for the reasons that Martin Luther is is doing the same thing. He's doing it for his own gratification and not just about theological differences. Right. And anytime we see that we
1: uh, as as we did with the Reformation, but anytime we see sort of like uh, religious, social, and political upheaval, what we're going to see is like this this huge delineation between progressives and people who are trying to conserve some sort of Uh, group identity. Uh, And that becomes more and more, as you said, regressive. Um, And so with the Puritans in particular, um, the Anglican church became more of a political um, byproduct of the situation, and it was no longer what they believed to be theologically pure. Um, whatever that means, that should be the asterisk of this, uh, maybe that's the title of the episode, like, whatever the hell that means. Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> but they thought it. <laughs> right, right. So in the case of the Puritans, you know, it it became such that uh, to be born, merely born in, the, in Britain was to be born into the Anglican Church. So you were an Anglican or or a Christian by default. It required nothing of faith. It required nothing of um, certain virtues. um, It required nothing of your political identity. And so um, that's partly what the Puritans were rebelling against was um, that they had adopted so profoundly the works of John Calvin um, who wrote, I mean, he was also, you know, a persecuted um, reformer uh, from the 16th century, French uh, reformer and uh, theologian and to some degree philosopher, who wrote uh, two very dull volumes called <laughs> The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He actually has some decent ideas, but one of his chief um presuppositions is the concept of predestination, uh, and and, and to some degree limited atonement. Uh, the concept of predestination is uh predicated on the idea that because God is all powerful, um God knows and in fact more than just having foreknowledge actually does predestine the events, um, of the world, um, throughout history. And therefore we don't really have free will. We don't really operate in a space of volition, but we are really reactionary to a pre-planned path that God has set, uh, from the foundation of the earth. And so, um, You know, the Puritans take that a little bit further. Uh, You know, John Calvin does talk about the predestination of the elect, the idea that, um, you know, the the, the people whom God has chosen for himself cannot be unchosen. So if you are destined for heaven, there is nothing you can do to necessarily lose that salvation. However, the counterpart of that is somewhat less gracious, somewhat less generous, that if God has destined you for perdition, there's also nothing you can do to uh, change your state of grace or your state of um (laughs) ungrace that's not a word. yeah
0: (laughs) you're destined for hell you're going to hell there's nothing you can do about it sorry which i mean brings a lot of problems into the into their religion which we probably won't get into right at this point but it's it, it is just such a you know hard line religion where it's like you're either saved or you're not saved and there's nothing you can do about it and it's it's It kind of throws the idea of redemption out the window. This idea is completely gone in Puritanism.
1: And it affects everything. So these are also people who would have um, limited their education, particularly female education, but also social education, um, to the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. So these are not especially educated people these are, as you said, hard line, it's a hard line or or very dogmatic religion, but it also informs the way that they look at everything, the way that they move through the world. So they get to Holland and they say, no, we are the elect. We are predestined for glory and for, um, well, manifest destiny ultimately is where we're headed. Um, and, And as a result, they're looking at all of these other people who are you know, enjoying and practicing freedom of religion. And the Puritans decide, no, we can't have that. (laughs) That is absolutely antithetical to our existence. And so they move to um, what is, you know, eventually to, to Massachusetts colony. But That concept of predestination informs everything. It it informs the genocide of First Nations and and Native peoples because they are somehow not elect. Um, And it also defines the way that they're going to treat the poor, the way that they're going to treat um, people who are enslaved groups. Um, They're going to treat every marginalized and oppressed group as though that is somehow a condition of, um, basically a condition of deserving oppression. Yeah, which they is, have... yeah, which is enormously different. problematic, right? Enormous. Uh, because why, should, why should I be compassionate towards a person um, whom God is so clearly punishing?
0: Right, like you you clearly deserve whatever has happened to you. If you're poor, if you're sick, if you're, you know, it, you're enslaved. This was God's plan for you the entire time, which it, it's, it's highly problematic. Uh, and though I guess they get points for not trying to trying to become missionaries and convert everybody, but they also just kill everybody. So (laughs) I'm
1: not sure. I'm not sure that that's necessarily an improvement. No. Uh, uh, An improvement upon say like the, the Spanish um, settlements here. Um, I think that, what we have here is a little bit more isolationist to their credit uh at the same time this idea and we're seeing it playing out in real time this the 23rd of december of the year of our lord such as it may be 2023, we are still encountering this same rhetoric right that god destined me for this land therefore it is uh, fine by any means met, uh, by any means necessary for me to occupy such a space
0: right uh, and it has a lot to do with things that are going on right now in the Middle East and things as well that we just see that influence over and over and over again where it is this you know this constant we think we're special you know that that there's some special space for us uh that that we're allowed to do these things and it definitely plays into like American foreign policy and things like that yeah American
1: certainly that, but also uh, you know, as I said before Western Western expansion, manifest destiny um the fact that I and you have experienced uh in in our profession uh numerous people um uh, typically on the more administrative side who view education as a sort of consumer product and therefore want that product, that education to be packaged in such a way that does not question manifest destiny and some sort of divine uh, revelation around our country, our nationality, our, um, social identity, which is that everything we do is obviously right. problematic. Yeah. Um, uh, to be honest, if you and I were on the street and we met someone who said, God gave me this land, you and I would question whether or not we had to call emergency medical services, right? That is a mental illness. And yet it's something that we also have to contend with almost daily as um professional academics professionals in education
0: yeah right It's special everything is right. everything is for the greater good right which you never hear anybody saying that you're like "Mm, yeah i feel like maybe you might be on the wrong side of history whenever anybody says i'm doing this for the greater good yeah i mean anytime we talk about american
1: exceptionalism which is constant right now we even see in the un where we have objective national sins when we are we are making um a, a travesty of our position in the world uh, and yet we do it by claiming some sort of di- like an extension of divine right. Um, yeah. that's, that's mental illness is what that is.
0: <laughs> yeah. it, it is. I think it's an extension in many ways it, you know despite the fact that the Puritans definitely did not you know they didn't they didn't truck with monarchism right they didn't really like the whole king thing they didn't like that but in a lot of ways I feel like Puritan ideology that's been passed down to us still holds a lot of that concept of divine right that kings had because you're dealing with these people who say i am right i god has chosen me we have a divine purpose and so everything we do is correct in the in the pursuit of that divine purpose and it's so it's just divine right but on a but on a i don't know a d- democratic level instead of a instead of a, not even democratic but you know a populist level let's say uh, versus a, versus the, the king having that divine right. It's, it's the same concept, I think. Yeah,
1: I agree. It's a, it's certainly, they're, they're certainly bedfellows. Um, what I, I think is probably, well, let me back up. Okay. So, uh, William Bradford writes, um, of Plymouth Plantation, which is really our first, um, along with maybe the Mayflower Compact, is our first, uh, witness to history, around the Puritans. Um, it's also written in third person, which I think is ironic because he writes of himself as though he was a character in his own story. And it's it's interesting because he's clearly setting out to write a history and yet there's so much, it's honestly uh, drenched with theology it's drenched with magical thinking. And so um, I actually pulled out a a portion here that I thought would be interesting for you. Um, Many became enlightened by the word of God. Again, he's writing this as a history, but we're also invoking deity um, apparent. Well, kind of strange, the Puritans didn't necessarily believe in divine revelation. So it's not sure how they're making these assumptions that God has told them such and such. Uh, but we have here um, many became enlightened uh, by the word of God. This is they're on the ship and their ignorance and sins discovered up onto them and began by his grace to reform their lives and make conscience of their ways. The work of God was no sooner manifest in them. But presently they were both scoffed and scorned by the profane multitude uh, and the ministers urged with a yoke of subscription or else be silence, meaning shut up or get with the program and everybody else, he talks about others outside of the Puritans. You want to talk about the, the attitude of separatism is that everybody else is the profane multitude. Uh, bizarrely, American evangelicalism has carried this on. We talk about be not of the world, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then we have um, some, some uh, chapters later, we have a young man who was um, a sailor, uh, on, on the Mayflower, who, um, actually curses a bit, and, um, uh, yes, yeah, terrible sin, terrible grievance, uh, and trespass against the sensibilities of the Puritans, and so, um, William Bradford writes that God struck him dead, Uh, Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> this this poor, unfortunate young man. We don't actually have any um, like historic, there's nothing in the record. There's nothing in the archives about him, what what illness he was struck with, nothing. We just know that God struck him with an illness. He died and they threw him overboard. And that was of course connected to
0: his sin of swearing. God was- Of course of, it was. I'm sure it had nothing uh, to do justice. with yeah. the rough sea crossing, the scurvy, uh, the, you know, it couldn't have anything to do with any of that stuff. Uh, the, you know, actually. Of, course, of course not. Has to do with offending uh god's
1: sensibilities or rather the, the sensibilities of the so-called people of god the people of yeah. god uh makes me wonder uh how often um god has wanted to strike me dead um i like i like a good f word or two uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or many more now that i live in new york uh,
0: <laughs> it's, it's it's just the way people talk you can't not do it right uh, but the, then again, studies have shown that people who curse more are more trustworthy. So, and I think that has a little bit more to do with the with the self righteousness of religious people who don't curse than it does with the actual cursing. But yeah. uh, you know, that's just my theory. I don't know <laughs> if it's I don't know if it's because I've become more impulsive
1: or if it's more that uh, having moved away or moved into more of a deconstruction space moved away from um as i said the 1990s homeschooled child um as i was raised the the closer i move into academia the more you realize that um cursing is is, is a perfectly linguistic um expression of whatever and it, it is so uh elastic
0: and so easily adaptable for our needs <laughs> you can use you can use the word <laughs> for so many things. And yes, we can curse on this show. It's always rated. Oh, it's always rated. Uh, it's always rated for not kids on when I put it posted on, online. So uh, we can, curse. it's such a, such a wonderful word that can be used in so many ways. I love it. So I think the next, um, probably the next line of thought here
1: is that the Puritans did not arrive with any sense of religious freedom. That's very, very important to touch on that, that the Puritans did not believe in religious freedom. They believed in a theocracy, um, and, and were not interested in having non-Puritans join their society. Um, in fact, in order to vote, you had to be obviously male, you had to be a landowner, and you had to be in good standing with their church. Um, which of course is going to lend itself into the sort of culture of oppression and silence that have, that inevitably is going to lead to
0: the witch trials and other and other right. well, i mean i mean it's so so many times i'm dealing with students and i uh one of the things i start off with when i talk about the puritans is asking students to define what they think freedom means uh because you know i want i want my students to kind of have that in their mind as we're discussing this like what's the concept of of freedom freedom of religion freedom of, of speech those kind of things what do you think those things mean and then turn it around and be like is this really why the pilgrims came here is is freedom as you have defined it does that have anything to do with what the pilgrims came here for which is always a a very elucidating moment for them i think when they realize that they have been they have been lied to from the very very beginning of saying that the pilgrims came here for religious freedom which is just not it's patently untrue they came there also worth noting
1: yeah the also worth noting that the puritans were considered cults Uh, they it was considered a cult in in uh western europe uh with there's certain elements of that that certainly uh lends itself towards that kind of assessment yeah, um, yeah. I think about, like the puritan revolution would be uh another great example we have of course the rise of uh thinkers like milton who patently called for regicide uh and then was able to for through whatever uh you know rhetorical acrobatics was, uh, able to say like, yes, God destined for us to murder the King. Um, uh, because that Wait. is also, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a religious, Uh, legitimate religious action is to just kill the people in charge. Yes. Uh, Never mind the Ten Commandments, never mind any of that, because it's...
0: Never mind the render
1: unto Caesar, what is Caesar's, never mind. That That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. If I, I, the Puritan head of household, believe that the king should die, then that it is completely within my purview to make that happen, which is, of course, utterly uh insane but we do have this very strange again the predestination creeps in um where you know if uh god intended um this king to die well then um why would i not partake in that action uh so yeah. quite quite some definitely problematic um it,
0: yeah that it, a continuation of of well, a continuation or even an expansion of religion becoming part of politics it, it it's inherently it's not separated from politics. They want the religion to be in the politics, which, like I said, you had to, to vote, you had to be in good standing with the church. So they have intimately connected the ideas of theology and, and political party at that point in time. And, and that's, you know, and again, that's, unfortunately, we see that continuing throughout throughout American culture is that marriage of politics and religion.
1: Now, I, I do think that it is so central to the conversation um, when, I'm sorry. Uh, well, no, I, I take it back. I'm not going to apologize. When absolute <laughs> idiots like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and their ilk get mm-hmm. on line and say, God, uh, the founding fathers destined us to be a Christian nation. I want to push back against that so hard because it requires a willful ignorance of history and culture. Yeah. Um, not not that, I mean, these people cannot pass like the AP civics exam. So like we know these people are not qualified. Um, but that is, uh, you know, part of, uh, you know, both the, the glory and the demise of democracy is that we invite people of all types to partake. Uh, and if, if, and when, um, really I should say if, because it's not a question of when, when, uh, democracy fails, <laughs> <laughs> Through through gerrymandering or other means, right? Various nefarious parties. What we see is, um, particularly this uh narrative, especially as we see more and more anti-intellectual um fervor, we're gonna see more and more of this rise where it's you can make blatant claims um with no training, with no qualifications, um, with no research, other than what we have, like I, I what I think of as like uh, COVID era white soccer mom research, like go and do your
0: research. I Googled <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Um, yeah, it makes, makes me think of if Google was a person. That script, like, does, does do vaccines cause autism? Well, I have 500 results here that say they don't, and one result that says they do. I knew it. You know, that's it. That's the research. So obviously, we have bias confirmation. But what we're seeing is these people,
1: uh, particularly those two women who just happen to be under my skin a lot as an academic. Uh, people who say yes. Oh, um, who's the who's the gentleman from Georgia now? The guy who called. Um, The LGBTQ uh, members of his community mutants, the same, it's the same, right, right, where you can just make a blatant statement uh, and expect that because you are in a position of power that somehow legitimizes your sentiment, um, which is absurd to to um the umpteenth degree Wait, honestly
0: look at the things that mike johnson is saying as speaker of that's the house and things he has saying. said in the past and all of them are so they, they are steeped in puritan ideology in in so many ways this idea that america is being punished for People, you know, being gay or people being, you know, it kind of goes all the way back to, uh, you know, the hurricane is the fault of gay marriage, you know, kind of thing, which is so funny. I just, I just bought a friend of mine sent me a link, and somebody had made a B movie horror poster. is that quote from Pat Robertson about how feminism makes women, you know, turn is, into lesbians. Which is, yes. Lesbian, whatever. And so now I, ju- I just ordered that poster because I was like, I don't really want a Pat Robertson quote on my wall, but it's so funny that I can't not buy the poster. Uh, I, I would
1: say, like, you know, turn that into a t shirt. I will wear that on campus. Like, I honestly. Will, I'll, I'll- I'll think about it. I'll think about making it. We've laughed about this before, but the number of times that I've, you and I have both been called witches because um, there's, you know, that there's a a scripture that says that rebellion is as witchcraft. And therefore, because I'm a woman who speaks in academic spaces, which have been historically preserved for white old men that there, there, you know, I'm automatically um, included in, in the uh, populace of, you know apparently local local well, witches i'm part of the the local coven by by merely being um well read apparently apparently
0: it's um, okay i'm okay with being in part of a coven i'm fine or, with that, oh, oh, yeah, that. You know. I just, Honestly, off I, I'm in
1: good company
0: <laughs> sli- we've split off topic a little bit but that's okay I'm mean, gonna I, I like sliding off topic I'm just gonna say I saw a post a few few days back where somebody was talking about how like oh yeah I remember back when uh evangelical churches said that reading Harry Potter would turn you away from God and turn you into a witch or whatever and I remember I it was a friend of mine who posted it on Facebook and I commented on it and said I'm really not the best person to try to refute that like I mean, I'm not saying that harry potter had anything to do with that because harry potter is written by a garbage human being uh and it's not even good writing in my personal opinion i said it I'm, i'll fight me if you don't like it uh, I'm, it's not good I, I'm saying that more to my listeners if they want to fight me they can uh, but, uh, okay. uh, but i don't think that's what caused me to turn from the church and, and become a you know a witchy lesbian with too many tarot cards but i can't really refute the point either which is uh, which is very frustrating for me <laughs> Well, I think any any organization that
1: is is predicated on exclusion, right? There is there are we enlightened um, white male, etc. Everything else in parenthesis, derogatory, um, a- and then there is them, the others, the people outside of the circle, the magic circle, maybe, uh, but <laughs> the people outside um, where uh, any kind of any kind of disagreement is not just annoying, even pejorative or libelous, but it's actually demonic, right? The number of times where I was told, uh, full, full disclosure to members in the audience who don't know me as well as Meredith does, I did teach at a religious school for five years when I when I started teaching before I had... Now, I, w- I was working for charter school, so I didn't really have to deal with um, sectarian or, or parochial content, um, but uh, it was so hugely impressed on me that I was meant to uphold and preserve as sacrosanct this narrative that the United States is above reproach and that any sort of contention was, in fact, demonic, which... Um, is uh why i only lasted five years i'm very surprised yeah, that, right. I lasted that oh, long.
0: amazing i'm amazed you made it that long quite frankly i don't think i could handle that i used to substitute teach at a middle school uh which was not religious but it was a, a religious. it was a uh, charter school here in in the, the phoenix area where i live and uh and i i i don't know if i'd ever take another selling job there again because it did have just this weird american exceptionalist overtoned everything in there and i was like subbing in a in a latin class and still like i got kind of a nasty email from somebody after i did it but i made a TikTok about it because i ref- i don't i don't put my hand i don't say the pledge i don't put my hand over my heart it's not a thing i do uh i think it's weird and i think a lot of people around the world would think it's pretty Very weird. Cult- but, and i would uh, argue that it's uh,
1: that it's it's pretty primeval anti-american
0: exactly and I I actually had students in the the, my my homeroom class that you know I was subbing for and they were like oh I can't believe you didn't put your say the pledge and I don't make a big deal out of it it's not like I make a stance and tell the students about it but they noticed because middle school students do and I was like well you don't have to say the pledge most most countries don't have pledges to flags that's not a thing like if you go anywhere else in the world they're not going to do that and they were like but isn't it Isn't it illegal? And I was like, no, you're perfectly within your rights not to say the pledge. It's completely legal. The Supreme Court said so. And then after I stopped subbing there, apparently some of the students stopped saying the pledge because they didn't want to. Um, And, you know, whether they did it for logical reasons or not, you know, they really thought it through or not. They didn't want to do it and they might have done it because they're just, you know, be edgy, edgy teenagers, but the teacher in question was a little bit peeved that I had told the students that they didn't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I was like, yeah. they asked me a question, I answered it honestly. I'm not going to lie to the students, you know, unless it's inappropriate content, you know.
1: And honestly, when 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 we're so okay, so you open your your question, you you open your class with what is freedom? I open many of my classes by having my students close their eyes and describe the Fourth of July. And this is another interesting concept. What do you hear? What do you smell? Um, You know, we've got fireworks and barbecue and whatever, whatever, whatever. And the question becomes then, which of those are symbolic of America and which ought to be? Right. What have we established as more like a dogmatic pseudo religious ritual and what is actually symbolic of what we believe and hope for our nation and those are really important to delineate because if you believe that it's okay to lead your i mean i think about like the the pennsylvania state house four years ago right like do you believe that it's right to pray and read the bible in public as a public official um versus in the safety of your own home in the privacy of your own home um, and what is it like to actually force other human beings into your religious experience right. um uh, that that is ongoing the fact that we're seeing people like um Tim Scott say, you know the the government is not, supposed to direct the church the church is supposed to direct the government or maybe that was bobert i don't know they're honestly so uh, at this point um where it requires a really willful ignorance and frankly it's pandering and we all know that it's performative pandering but um the fact that that's even allowed to be said in public by a public official is so misleading um and and again i will protect your right to be an idiot you have every right to be an idiot but when you're in a person in a position of authority and then that becomes your messaging to your constituents and to the country at large because frankly the algorithm uh of of everything the the algorithm of modern america is such that it rewards bad behavior Mm -hmm. and rewards sensationalizing right and so we have these people saying like the founding fathers blah 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 Well, okay, let's take a look at those founding fathers, shall we? Like the Puritans are not worth emulating. They were dangerous people. They were oppressive, abusive, and and
0: quakers. Like they were executing people for not following their religious beliefs. And that is something that I find that especially my students are very shocked to learn when I start talking about their execution of Quakers. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I predicate it with the fact that, yeah, the Quakers were, they were, they were kind of a doomsday cult and they were a little bit annoying and they probably showed up in town and caused a lot of disruption, but being an asshole isn't illegal. Like, it shouldn't be something that you get killed for just because you believe something that is kind of, that just because you're a little annoying in the public square, that's not a good reason to be executed. Uh, and that's just not, that's not how this is supposed to work and not if you believe in freedom, right? And they clearly did not. Yeah.
1: I think we also see, we see see the echoes of those, that ramification with people like the GOP right now, where they're invoking, I mean, to to some degree, we certainly see it some in in certain pockets in the liberal movement um, when we invoke God for any reason, for any purpose. Um, But we see it, especially in the GOP, the right wing um, religious side of that where you know god chose me to we see mike johnson talking about how his wife has bruises on her knees because she's been praying and i mean that was just a meme that wrote itself it did i don't
0: know what he was thinking but it was (laughs) it did write itself right Right.
1: uh uh, and and this comes from uh, again you cannot have the puritans without having volitional intentional ignorance and, mm-hmm. and the repression of education, right? You can't have that. this, Why, by the way, the same methodology that um, uh, Moms for Liberty are taking, right? We don't want our kids to be this way, therefore we are going to restrict their access to education, restrict their access to information by sensationalizing, oh no, we can't have, you know, the, the one about the penguins, the gay penguins, we can't have that because it's got pornographic material right? We just sensationalize ad nauseum in, because if we, if we take it to extremes, oh no, we're showing our kids, someone's showing my kid porn at school. Um, it's the okay. same methodology that the Puritans are using to say, we, we will not truck with the Anglican church. It's extreme, they're demonic, whatever. And, and literally using mythological terms to describe your political or ideological opponent. Right. They because are. They, they are. are bad. Bad. yeah Yeah. it doesn't get more base than that to be like i don't like you therefore you're possessed i don't agree
0: with you and it's instead of having a conversation about why it is you don't agree with that person and trying to come to you know some sort of middle ground or some sort of discussion uh it's just you are an evil person and if you're the one writing writing the books like bradford going back to on plymouth plantation When you go back and look at that so much of it is a it's it's so propaganda based it is by no means a honest historical look at the founding of the Plymouth. colony, because what you're looking at is this you know everything bad that happens he's he writes about it like oh this is just God testing us and everything good that happens is like oh we're being rewarded by God, and it has nothing to do with. You know the hard work of the of the people in the Community or the hard work of the natives who actually saved their asses, right? Who they would have died without this this na- these native tribes doing so many kind things and, and cooperating with them as equals. Uh, but everything about that is just God, God coming in and helping them. And that's how they justify then later massacring those same natives, you know? And
1: I think there's also something here to be said uh, before we move on from like the original Puritan colonies is the way in which we have I would say preserved, but honestly, it's, it's a false preservation. It's a, it's a, an ode to, to white nostalgia. Um, I, as I've mentioned, homeschooled in the 1990s. I remember very distinctly, um, this book that is now, by the way, being touted by Moms for Liberty so that you should tell, you should know from the get-go that this is a bad source of information. I remember my mother, we were reading a book called The Story of Liberty, which is actually by, uh, an author whose name I can't Im- immediately recall, but he's from Irvine. And, um, this book is the the story of Liberty is essentially an entirely fictionalized version of Plymouth plantation. Um, and, and, and more, but it, it honestly says things like, um, that the puritans were blessed because squanto had already been kidnapped previously by english speakers and so it was a divine appointment that the previously enslaved squanto was there and could translate for and that was a divine appointment never mind the yeah. fact that this this poor person had been uh had been at the the miserable hands of of enslavers who believed him to be a savage because he didn't speak english and the fact that this book was trying to honestly fictionalize a traumatic event and twist it's the same people who say like well we're going to talk about prager later but um the same people who are like well yeah but you know, African-American slaves didn't have it that bad. Don't take that out of context, Meredith. Don't put not. that on TikTok. <laughs> you, say, you, say, you know, those people who were slaves. Like, at least they got to meet Jesus. I mean, I'm sorry, but fuck that. Like yeah. That, yeah. that narrative cannot persist. And
0: yet it does. That narrative that was coming out in the Florida those Florida history standards where they're saying oh yeah but they learned marketable skills, while they were enslaved so it was okay they came out better in the end and it's like that is so just. Mind-bogglingly awful. Though I have to give credit to the book that you're talking about uh, for at least being honest about Squanto being enslaved, because I don't recall ever being taught that in school. Like it was just kind of like, oh, there's Squanto and he magically knows English and he's friendly with these people. I, I don't remember them ever mentioning that. I, he I will was say, enslaved. I will say,
1: so my, half my... a
0: point for effort on giving that information. At least
1: <laughs> I guess. I will say to her credit, you know, um, I, I was homeschooled and I was in the homeschooling community at the same time. I was somewhat isolated in that both of my parents are highly educated. They were not coming at it from a religious bent necessarily. Um, you know, both of my parents went to USC for broadcast journalism. My mother has her master's in philosophy and her doctorate. So I was also learning in a different space of the homeschooling community. It was quite, um, you know, I would say a bit of an outlier, but I will say to her credit, my mother actually took that book in front of me, tore it up and threw it in the trash. So I'm quite happy. I'm happy to say that that was very important. Like we don't, we do not propagate misinformation, particularly with
0: a religious bent that is so destructive. Um, and, And just going on with that, I had a very similar experience. I was only homeschooled a few years. I I mostly, I went to a Christian school in elementary school, uh, Mm -hmm. a private school, which less said about that, the better. Like my parents (laughs) were trying. right? Fort Smith public schools were not that great. I grew up in Arkansas. Uh, I'm not gonna say that the evangelical Baptist church that ran the Christian church I went or Christian school I went to was any better, but eh, they were giving an effort um and they went out of their way to send me to a private school so good for them but then i was partially homeschooled throughout other years uh but primarily that was for other reasons than my parents having a issue with the education like my mom my mom's a, uh has an uh, optometric doctorate she's an optometrist so she's not a medical doctor but she's gone to graduate school for for medicine my dad was a science teacher yeah uh so i n- I was never raised with that like oh you know evolution's not real or things like that which you know, i was never raised on that and most of my homeschooling was done because i had i was having emotional issues like i was i had depression and things like that and my mom i was being bullied and so my mom pulled me out of school uh but they they same same thing they were not homeschooling me from a religious mindset i think the closest we get to a we ever got to really religious content in our in my homeschooling was uh, uh susan wise bowers books uh because she used that you know she has this classical education model that they, my parents used but really okay, we, have to, we have to talk about the classical model <laughs> we'll, we'll get around, around that eventually maybe we'll have another episode we can talk about the classical education model in another episode but uh, but as far as things go, Susan Weisbauer is like religious light. She's not like the crazy, you know, the crazy right. side of this. Uh, if, if Susan Weisbauer hears this, I'll have you on the podcast to talk about it. I will. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Susan would love
1: to discuss, especially yeah. because she. you're, you're right in, in saying that she was sort of religious light, because I think of like Beautiful Feet and Sunlight and all of these other, I mean, a Becca, um, Bob Jones University, which is not accredited number one, and also If anyone is listening to this who is considering moving to Pensacola, do not move to Pensacola. I beg of you, please spare yourself the
0: therapy bills. I mean, it's Um, Florida. Nobody should be considering moving to Florida anyway, but still. Yeah, we should have another episode and talk about homeschooling because I think we would have so much to talk about. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah,
1: Again, we see the Puritan influence there where, you know, education is so belittled because all you need is faith. um, And uh, honestly, yeah, fuck that narrative. All right. So I guess the next part of the question is how do we see Puritan, the the Puritan outlook on life, perspective on life um, really perpetuated in 2023, right? How do we see that still part of it of course course, is what we've said about this these fictitious historical narratives the fact that i love norman rockwell and did he get it wrong yeah of course i love charlie brown and did they get it wrong yes of course Mm -hmm. um but uh you know i am still negotiating with the difference between my white nostalgia about loving You know Vince Guaraldi and his jazz trio, and um, and also learning to navigate. What do we do exactly when our traditions are, in their very nature, uh, negating? The pain and misery and oppression that we have perpetuated against other people. Exactly. So, it's a very
0: certain where we enjoy it. It's it. You know, like I love, I love Norman Rockwell, and you know, I try to focus on the no- parts of Norman Rockwell that most people don't focus on, which I, I love the pieces that he he actually did do pieces on institutional racism. He did things yeah, on yeah, those areas. And when I, when I when I in my classes, it's always those pieces and not the you know the rampant Americana that he produced. Uh, for for other magazines, he he produced some very some very iconic images of of racism in America actually throughout his work. So uh, I always enjoy
1: those. I think as historians and well, you know, students of history, I wouldn't call myself a historian. I I think I know too little, um, but I, I think that. Um, part of what we must contend with, especially as educators, is the balance between sources that are problematic and whose authors are problematic Mm -hmm. and sources that also in in spite of those failures also teach us something about culture and society and how we've come uh how far we've come or not um and so um i mean you were even mentioning Rowling earlier uh as what did you call her a gar- garbage human being or something like that and that's and that's yeah. perfectly valid um <laughs> but you know there's also something to be negotiated there as someone who where for, for whom harry potter was transcendent right yeah. is it is it br- brilliantly written no not really um but it was um you know what we're what we're missing is the the social inclusion of feeling that you know, this story was being told for me. What if I was exceptional? Which again, I'm a white woman. I don't need to be told that I'm exceptional. I live in the United States. Um, But there is something, you know, about having waited in line for a first edition or, or going to the movies or the fact that I actually didn't encounter Harry Potter until I was married and my husband read them to me while we were moving across the country because he was in the military, right? Like there's a lot of nostalgia that comes with that. And I don't want to undo that nostalgia, but I also want to be able to hold complicated conversations in both hands. I want to be able to say um, the I want people to be safe with me and I want to communicate that people are safe with me, which may mean the exclusion of certain childhood books. Um, and that should be OK, because people matter more than my nostalgia. And so right. there's, there are complicated conversations. And I wish that we were able to have those conversations about the Puritans. See it right, so right, so right, full circle.
0: Not, not right. about, it's exactly the, the case. Yes. We have to have that conversation. We have to be able to say, look, it's okay to enjoy the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special. Nobody's telling you you can't enjoy that as a as a, a moment, as a moment of nostalgia, as a moment of childhood memory. That's not the issue. The issue is separating the fact from the fiction. And it's it's like I feel the same way about so many things, uh, where it's just you can enjoy this story, just know that it's not true and you have to unpack the things about it that aren't true in some some concept in mean, some context or you're just you know you're believing a lie which is not helpful
1: and I think there's there's something also so very precious about being able to have nuanced conversation particularly with your children because it's maybe it's a little strange that I'm 35 and re- revisiting Charlie Brown but again I'm a classical pianist so you know uh, I've been trying to to pick up a little bit of Garaldi in my spare time uh, but you know if I was a ch- if I was a parent I would be having a very different conversation about this I would probably make sure that my children understood the context before just feeding it to them wholesale at five or six years old let's go watch you know uh, the peanuts skating on the pond right Let let's understand maybe the fullness of this uh, and, and that's not to say that I believe in censorship. I don't. Uh, but I do think that we have to have these conversations in
0: responsible and and somewhat didactic ways. Um, and I think it's important because as we're talking about like how how the influence of Puritan culture has affected us culture, you know, Puritan ideas have affected us culturally. There's so much of that in the, the, the problems that we have, you know, dealing with mental illness, things dealing with, you know, with with poverty in this country dealing with self care, things like that, where it is, the, the Puritan ideologies are so sneaky, and so much a part of our society that they damage us. Uh, and the way we the way we exist in society, the way we exist with our own bodies and things like that, it's it's inherently damaging to to our psyche, in a lot of ways, because it's, it's snuck in there so much. And that's it becomes an important discussion. Yeah.
1: So if we if we fast forward some three hundred odd years from from the instigation of the Puritan presence in in the North American content, continent, um, we would see things like um, this narrative around um, a particularly um, toxic narrative around welfare queens, right? That to be well to be on welfare is somehow uh, to be deserving of poverty. Um, or that, uh, what, what is that horrible, like, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you're like, okay, what bootstraps, John, um, what does that, what exactly does that mean? And why do we still to this day, um honestly participate in this kind of idolatry of wealth, um, that the person who has billions of dollars, um, not that there is ethical, not that there are ethical billionaires uh, uh, in in any society, but that somehow that person is intellectually superior, morally superior, and God has blessed them. We may not say the last part out loud, but it is understood, right that um Bezos or or Musk or you know insert your current Marvel villain um you know what we're having there is this is this understanding that they they built themselves from you know this backyard garage whatever that 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 They're rich so they right? must
0: be they must be good right there's there's something positive about them in some context because if they weren't good they wouldn't be wealthy and that's such an obvious like obviously wrong concept uh but america has that idea a lot yeah the
1: corollary is equally prevalent right that uh if you are poor it's because your wealth uh you're you're unlucky or at worst immoral right um that you are a drag on the system that you are um you know somehow like this constant uh uh honestly conflation of marginalized people groups with people who are deserving of poverty is yeah. um, is a uniquely puritan idea um that's that's one of the more um honestly insidious ways that the puritan impact is still felt in in this country is that if you are poor it's because you are deserving of it you are deserving of poverty you are deserving mm-hmm. of want
0: and if you just worked a little harder, you just grabbed, you know, just had three jobs or maybe four. If you already have three jobs, get a fourth one. And if you just stop buying avocado toast and and Starbucks, you know, or, you know, stop getting your daily coffee, you'll be able to afford a house or afford, you know, afford any of these things. We have this, this, that's a very much a part of our culture uh, where it's this, this, this idea that somehow if you just work a little harder, just hustle a little more, you'll end up, You know successful or wealthy or whatever and i you know i can't remember the name cannot for some reason remember the name of the guy right now but he was big in um in the the late 1800s early early 1900s on writing books about like rags to riches and i cannot remember his name right right at this moment i'll put it in the notes later Uh, um but uh, um shoot um the rise of silas latham is what comes to mind i I, that might be it let me Dean no, it's not that guy. Um, this is—he was big in like you know the the uh, you know the idea that if you work hard, anything will come to you, right? It, you, you know, you're just gonna get these, and it, it's kind of similar to the rise of Silas Latham, but it's not that author. Um, it's it's a—he wrote a whole series of these you know stories about like young men who were you know like down on their luck orphans or whatever, and would become you know, wealthy. And uh, what I th- always find funny about those books is that the man in question who wrote them um, was, uh, was a pedophile. Uh, And so he wrote a book, all these series of books that were popular about young men, usually having a wealthy benefactor who helps them because they're such a good person and they become wealthy as a result of it. And I to raise raise a lot of red flags about that. Once you realize what his background was and the fact that he was like expelled from the church, he was a pastor of for inappropriate behavior with young boys, uh, which whole thing to unpack there. But it kind of goes into this idea that like, oh yeah, it's kind of a red flag when you think that everything in life is going to be handed to you if you're just a really good person like that's just not that's not accurate yeah so I
1: mean I think uh you know my my parents um my mother is still a very religious person my my father was until his until his death but I remember so very clearly as a young child um, my father was out of work when i was just born and he told me it was part of family lore in fact that he he said something like you know you trust you trust god but then you knock down every door until you get work um which is to say we don't really uh, god is not in charge of our fate um we are but there's still an element of the puritan in that to say like- not that we are predestined, but to say that if I work harder, uh, I can still accomplish the American dream. And the American dream is different for everyone. But this, this sort of the social buy-in is that if we work harder, we can achieve our goal without recognizing that there are obstacles that are absolutely intrinsic Uh, To existing as an American, particularly for people of color, uh, and for marginalized groups that they're going to encounter different obstacles and the Puritans would have said well yes but that is because uh, that's like the result of your sin or the result of some some moral failure.
0: Exactly. I was gonna use a second to talk about the phrase "American Dream." Uh, I've I've been finally trying to work my way through this book. I've quoted it before in a in a couple of uh, a couple of TikToks. Uh, I'm trying to work my way through actually finishing it. It's this book by Sarah Churchwell, uh, in which she kind of unpacks the history of the terms "America first and the "American Dream." It's called "Behold America." And uh, it's a really interesting look at the kind of history of those terms and how how they've impacted American society and culture, Uh, because, you know, the American dream is a very politicized term, but so is the term America first, and they became they, they kind of mean something. Uh, but we always hear the terms and we don't know what they mean or where they came from. And I think it's a really interesting book. Uh, and I fa- figured out who it was, it's Horatio Alger, that's the guy I'm talking about, um, who wrote, uh, who wrote all these books about, you know, yokes becoming, um, you know, wealthy through their good works or whatever. Yeah, rags to riches narrative is his thing. Uh, he b- wrote them um, 1868, all, all the way through his death in 1899. And he was a, yeah, uh, yeah, it child child sex sex abuse. um he had been reported for this uh, gross familiarity with young boys. He didn't deny anything. He admitted what he did, and they just kicked him out of the church and let him go. Nobody ever did anything about it, which is a to the to the degree of difficulty that
1: exists
0: in holding wealthy
1: people accountable
0: yeah yeah exactly they kind of just they get away with so much because again if you're wealthy if you're connected you must be a good person it just kind of goes into that and uh you know like we're talking about welfare it is this idea that you have done something to deserve it and that is it intrinsically tied I think to the way that America views the welfare system versus other countries um Mm -hmm. you know like When you're living in like I lived in Europe for a while, the idea of being on welfare is not as even in a very Calvinist country like the Netherlands, uh, the idea of welfare is not treated the same. It is not treated as if you have done something wrong or that there is something intrinsically you know lazy or or broken about you as a person. It's just a matter of you know you need some help, right? There's a you've got a lean time. There's there's a problem here. Uh, And you're not doing anything wrong to need that. And I I think a lot of cultures, especially in Western Europe, the welfare is a lot less demonized. Uh, It's, people aren't treated the same way. And, you know, that's a much healthier way because people don't have to feel ashamed of needing that help. Whereas I know people here in America who feel horribly ashamed of needing things like food stamps or things like that. I remember reading a story recently um, an article about a adjunct professor in New York City who had written about the fact that she was on food stamps wow. and how she was she happened to have been in line at the grocery store and she realized that one of her students was her the woman at the checkout and and so she is sitting here going I can't pay my student with my food stamp card because then they're going to know that I'm on food stamps and they're not going to look at me the same way uh, even though the problem here is the fact that a woman who's teaching <laughs> at multiple colleges in New York City is on food, the problem is not her. She is not doing anything wrong. She is is not at fault for this. She is taking advantage of a service that she needs because someone else is disrespecting her. Right. So
1: the the, the story is that you as a moral entity have failed rather than that you have been failed by an external system, right? And so, you know, what we're seeing with the Puritans is this, uh, honestly, what I find to be quite uh, astounding is that this runs really contrary to everything we, that we know? Uh, for a particularly religious group, they did a really shitty job of following any of the actual mandates of their own religion, which is, of course, to say, um, you know, se- take all you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. Take care of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And of course, those are things that we still, even as a um, post-religious country, we still can't get that right. No, um, yeah. That, you know, the same people who say that, you know, this is a Christian nation because our founders willed it, um, which again is is so ignorant that it would take an entirely separate episode just to address that um the same people who are making those claims are also saying that if you need a handout it's a moral failure rather than saying hey it is my responsibility to make sure that the homeless in my community are being taken care of it is my responsibility to create a social environment where people can thrive um instead we have this uh patent
0: worship of billionaires which i find to be Right. And then they say, well, we don't want taxation or welfare system because it should be the responsibility of the people, the church to, to do these things. And it's like, okay, but you're not doing it. So the, the solution here is not to say the government can't do it, but also we're not going to do it because it's immoral to help somebody who's being punished by God, right? They're being punished. So they should just stay that way. And we, we do see that a lot. And of course, uh, what you're saying here about like the Puritans being really bad at practicing what was actually in the Bible, we see that so often today too with the evangelicals who are for some reason still buying into the the, the Trump you know the Trumpism, which is wild to me on so many levels. Uh, but you do see that. I remember seeing a few months back a story from a pastor who was talking about the fact that his parishioners told him he was being too woke yes. because. He was preaching- <laughs> He was preaching about the Sermon on the Mount. And and so Jesus is too woke for them. And that is just, you know, it is the same thing, right? They want a very particular form of Christianity, they want a very particular form of Jesus, and that bears a lot more similarity to the Puritan ideologies than it does to anything in the Bible itself.
1: You know, I I uh, I've taught Dostoevsky for years and years, and um, one of my favorite episodes to teach is out of the Brothers K called the Grand Inquisitor, and um, it's this story um, that I think uh, a lot of literary nerds and historical nerds are are very into. Uh, we engage with it quite prolifically. It's this idea that, you know, this society has been, has been waiting because the, the Inquisitor is coming, someone is coming. And of course, this, this is a metaphor for the arrival of Jesus uh, at whatever end times you ascribe to. And of course, he ends up dying again, they murder him again, because he is critical of the way that they treat primarily the poor. Um, And um, that is, again, the structure that we have borrowed in large part from the Puritans, um, because obviously we don't get that in in, um, church history, uh, except when we begin to um, sort of create connective tissue that does not exist between religion and politics there's a reason that they tell you not to bring those two topics up at the Thanksgiving dinner
0: table <laughs> Kids, and then I them. encourage everyone to do that every Thanksgiving because I like uh, to come uh, of course you do but, um, that's you know that's just me I, so uh, at Thanksgiving when I re- reposted my Thanksgiving episode uh, for it I was like everybody should have everybody listen to this while you're making Thanksgiving dinner yes. and, and then tell me what the reactions were because I enjoy chaos that's my that's my thing. Uh, But yeah, it's it is incredibly frustrating to watch people who don't know anything I I, I was I went to a Christian evangelical Bible like private school and I was raised in the Evangelical Baptist Church. And I am one of those people who takes things very seriously so if I'm going to be Christian I'm going to be Christian right you know I'm going to read the Bible I'm going to know what it says. And I you know I, I won every Bible quiz bowl you know I was that I was that kid. And it is very frustrating to me to watch people who know nothing about the Bible, talk mm-hmm. about the, how good a Christian they are. And it, it's a, your version of Christianity does not jive with what I learned, which is one of the reasons I left the church because yeah. the, the version of Christianity they were preaching also didn't jive with what I was reading in the Bible. And it just, it didn't make any sense to me that, you know, that you can, if, if this religion is true and you're just gonna ignore it for your own own purposes, then I don't see the point. I don't, I just don't see the point in any of this. And, yep. uh, and that, it just frustrates me. Yeah. To that exact end, to, two quick, um,
1: uh, yeah, two quick stories, I guess. The first is obviously, um, uh, the, the image that is seared into my brain of Donald Trump refusing to answer, which which is his fi- favorite scripture, he says it's too personal. That's mostly because he doesn't know that there are words in yeah. the Bible.
0: Um, He's upside down. He can't read it anyway. I, I mean,
1: I the, the farce is insane. Uh, and the levels to which we are willing to cater to the billionaire uh, man child uh, cheeto monster uh, is absurd. Um, but because he is willing to align himself for the first time in his life, I might add, with some sort of religious code, um, he it, it is pandering at the most base level, but people are willing to buy it because he's claiming to be religious. So there's that there's the first thing. The second story is that when he was elected, I was asked to be on a panel uh, for World magazine, which is a is a an evangelical magazine at the time I was already leaving the church. I had joined the Quakers because they are a little bit closer um at least in in practical, speaking to, to where I align myself. I, I I don't believe in the supernatural, but they do allow you to ask good questions and they are right. answering war. are saying is the Puritans would definitely have hated you. They definitely yes, have taken yes, you. Absolutely. They hated the Quakers. <laughs> absolutely. And um, especially as someone who has experienced military culture, the Quakers were definitely the way out of the dogmatic uh, evangelical church in my case. But I remember sitting there in this room and first of all, uh, we were asked, it like female leaders from the community or something like that. The parameters were intentionally vague and we were asked to watch the inauguration of Donald Trump and then to comment on it. And I was one of only two women. First of all, I was one of only two women in my 20s, period. Everybody else was considerably older. And I was the the two of us were the only two who had not voted for Trump. And when the mic got around to me, I said, frankly, the reason that I didn't vote for him is because I will not vote for um, someone who has in public admitted to committed committing felonies. And of course, I was referring to um, his sexual assault, mm-hmm. uh, which we have on tape. <laughs> but the, woman, the woman behind me who was in her, I think, 70s um, interrupted and asked to take the mic from me. Uh, and because I am not a confrontational person, gave her the mic. And she said, uh, I just want you to know that I have been fasting and praying and God told me that Donald Trump never did that thing um
0: really god
1: god was talking to you (laughs) that statement alone requires a lot of unpacking um the amount the honestly the mental illness and the delusion that is so imperative to that stance is really deeply troubling and it's not isolated that is everywhere god has told me such and such if god is speaking to you dear reader please go get medication
0: right I, I I wonder if maybe the the fasting might have had something to do with the hallucinations just a just a concept right um i remember you know fasting being a thing in the evangelical church as well like we would participate in these fasting events and things like that and it is that moment of they it, they push you to a level of exhaustion and physical need that you do begin to hallucinate and it, it is you know and then you're supposed to believe that that is a, a spiritual experience when it actually is just your body crying out for help uh because you are tormenting it and that's not you know that's not healthy um but they think it's a religious experience ooh we just had a religious spiritual high but yeah one of the best statements i've heard was something like i thought as a, as a child in the evangelical
1: church i thought i was having a religious experience really i just liked live music yeah. and i <laughs>
0: I think there's like just go to a Taylor Swift Swift concert and you'll get the same experience without all the baggage that you need to unpack. So, Go to (laughs) a concert. Um, I think there's also
1: the fact, um, something,
0: um, I
1: remember being a child, you said you were part of a Bible bowl or something like that. <laughs> bowl, Bible quiz bowl. Yeah. Bible quiz bowl. Okay. So, uh, I was involved very heavily in an organization called Awana, which is a Bible memorization, uh, program. And, uh, to some degree, like it gave, it gave us uh, a way to, you know, play games and, and compete. And it was sort of like Bible Boy Scouts, imagine, um, but I remember being four years old, um, in the Sparkies, the Sparkies division of this club, and yes, there was you know weekly Bible memorization, et cetera. But we began every uh, every meeting on Wednesday nights at six o'clock by praying. Number one, number two, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and then saying the pledge to the Christian flag. Yes yes, dear reader, there is a Christian flag and people pledge allegiance to it. But yeah. I remember being a little bit older and starting to ask the questions of like, why are we saying the Pledge of Allegiance in a religious affiliation? Why? And, and it's so conflated so early on that to be American, you have to be a Christian. That's what makes you a patriot. Um, and And that's, so pernicious it's so toxic to say that there is only one way of being an american and there is only one way to be an evangelical and it requires this sort of um unholy um yeah concoction uh and very heady at a young age when you're taught at four years old you say the pledge of allegiance as a uh as um i guess you could say maybe as an expression of your religious ritual, which mm-hmm. is very concerning.
0: <laughs> yes, it is very concerning, and you end up. I mean, we have this is something I'm teaching this class uh, on American history from 1945 to present. So one of the one of the readings and sections that we're talking about uh, next semester is talking about this that shift in in uh, in like relig- in the religion part of America, which becomes a far more prominent part of politics in, during the Cold War. It becomes, I mean, obviously. Yeah. the puritans have had a long running impact on us yes. uh, but the very obvious politicization of, of religion uh starts on it starts you know during the 1950s while we're kind of in conflict with the you know with the, the atheistic communists uh which lot to unpack with that um with a lot, that a lot of willful a lot of willful ignorance there a lot. yeah a lot uh, i mean there is certainly some atheism going on in in there but there's there's the, the religion is wait we, we ignore the religious aspects of of the Soviet Union way too much but that's an entirely different episode um but yeah so it, it was this you know it comes into play where we start to really really push this evangelical side of Christianity into in the 1950s and then it only gets worse like from the 1950s on up to the the 1980s it really just just grows into a monster and it and then you know gets pulled into the Republican Party in this in this massive way during the 1980s. Uh, I I don't hate Reagan as much as most people hate Reagan like I I have a very more much more nuanced view of, of Reagan in many cases. Uh, but I that is one thing I'll never forgive him for which is, you know, sucking the religious right right into the Republican Party. um nah, that one was a major misstep on his part I don't think he really f- realized how bad that would turn out but uh but yeah
1: it's a a matter of um a b-list celebrity with arguably limited talent wanting to make a name for himself on the political stage. And so, uh, again, we have this sort of unholy matrimony of Reagan and Falwell, um, Mm -hmm. which just becomes um, cataclysmic. Uh, And we're seeing that we're, you know, Donald Trump is honestly just the inheritor of that
0: as a political policy. And at least Reagan had a little more political political experience than Uh, than Trump did. Yeah, certainly there is some similarity there.
1: Sure. But we also see with Reagan, um, you know, the complete abandonment of, frankly, what the, what the Republicans, the potential for what the Republican Party could have been, um, mm-hmm. which is to say small government, etc. Um, you know, most people don't know that Reagan actually put into legislation the first pro-choice legislation in california and then changed his mind because the original um behavior and attitude of the republican party towards the issue of abortion
0: was that it was none of the government's goddamn business yeah i mean if you look back at a long history of that uh i always find it very interesting to look at like focus on the family uh where dobson was very much pro-choice at a certain point in his career and then flipped everything flipped eventually when when abortion became a hot button issue for the evangelical church
1: funny another funny story then is because i was teaching i i i taught both a us uh, i taught a push and american literature um uh not concurrently but but um different days of the week and so i had a lot of students who actually uh overlapped and did both uh at the same time and so uh, i remember one young girl um Uh, who asked me, uh, Rebecca asked me, what was the Puritan attitude towards abortion? And I thought that was such a fascinating question because of course, at the same time we were reading um, Hawthorne and uh, it was a great question. It had not occurred to me. And so I went and actually did some research. And as it turns out, the Puritans were absolutely wholeheartedly fans of abortion um, because you could not tell if it was very much Schrodinger's fetus. You know, you couldn't tell if the baby was alive until it was quickening, which is um, to say kicking. Uh, and until then uh, abortion was was used prolifically as a way of um you know especially for unwed mothers it was a way um of providing them an alternate um choice in life an alternate path in life right. um now, was it used really to benefit women of course not but um no but it's not something that 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 um maybe the more uh religious, um, constituents of the GOP would probably not love to know that these Puritans, uh, right. <laughs> otherwise, were absolutely pro-choice. Um, but,
0: and uh, I have an episode uh, you may have listened to it as, as, towards the beginning of the first season on the history of abortion, which is, I mean, abortion does not become a a topic of of legal debate in America really until. After the Civil War, I mean, there's there's a few scatterings of of different laws. Most of them uh, saying it's it's illegal to quicken,ing which is again a very person that that's a very vague thing, and also you know a, a woman could easily lie, right? It's not it's not exactly that difficult. But um, so
1: interesting there. But, what's so beautiful there is that it relies on the woman to tell you what is
0: happening in her body, which I think is quite, um, yeah, quite telling. Quite telling, yeah, and so yeah, we don't see that politicization and and the legality of that come up until we get to uh, until that post post civil war period, and that has a lot more to do with white supremacy than it does, which is a different discussion, but uh, though. Related to Puritanism in, in several ways, I suppose, but uh, it certainly comes up into that discussion. So, yeah, this has been a really, really great conversation. I think we really made a lot of connections here on you know the past to present. I'm sure there's going to be some people who are mad about it, but I mean, if they came onto this podcast yeah. not expecting us to rip on Marjorie Taylor Green, they were on the wrong podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've made fun of her before on the show so I don't think I don't think that's going to be a surprise oh, to oh, man.
1: that That woman lives in my brain rent free for sure right now. Unfortunately yeah. I mean, the answer to the unspoken question is, yes, the Puritans are still felt today. They are absolutely still an influence. Um, We see it even in the self-care industry right now, um, where, you know, we're we're being into particularly, I would say the pernicious whiteness of self-care, where, you know, even self-care is only available because you deserve it, right? Go ahead, treat yourself. You deserve it. And this concept that you cannot... Uh, even access you ought not to expect to access good things unless you deserve it uh, is deeply problematic. We need to, to be very conscious of the way that we are communicating that, uh, of course, it's a consumerist message self care is just one one more way to, you know, buy Sephora. But, um, you know, this this contribution to consumers and we see it every day The the impact of the Puritan um, philosophy
0: and, and um, social theology. Yeah. Every day, everywhere, every cornice. I think it's, it's, like I said, it's just, it's very sneaky. It snuck its way into every part of like American culture. Uh, the You know, it's, it's just the, in our society everywhere. And it's kind of, saying, saying right. kind of like
1: the more brash, like slut shaming that all comes from, it's the same place. It's the same place.
0: All the same thing. And uh, I mean, you know, they might've gotten it right on allowing abortion, but that they weren't doing it for the right reasons you know there's so many things that the puritans where you go may they weren't terribly wrong about that little tiny thing or they weren't terribly wrong about that but none of it's for the right reasons (laughs) they're always they always believe it for the wrong reasons
1: Um, i mean even the the foundational aspect of he who does not work shall not eat Um, this idea that you have to be productive and you have to be somehow contributing and that if you are somehow, you know, if you're other, otherwise abled, or if you are from a marginalized group, uh, if you cannot produce, then you don't deserve food. Uh, It's backwards. It's, it's frankly evil and it's absolutely
0: present in our society. Absolutely. Though, I guess with the, the, the he shall not eat, work shall not eat, at least I understand contextually that uh, the problem there being that they had a bunch of gentlemen who didn't believe that they should have to things which they they were just literally not contributing. They were like, I'm here to find gold. And that's all I'm here to do. And it's like, "Mm, that's not how a society works. You guys kind of all kind of work together or else you know, and I I have so many problems with john Smith. I've talked about him on uh, so many problems with him, but at least contextually, I understand what he was getting at in that moment. But yeah, if you can't work, you can't eat. That is an unhealthy way to look at uh, at society. It really is. Yeah that's also something that
1: we see in the difference between you know Plymouth uh plantation versus Jamestown uh where one obviously was far more secular and yes we had the second born son who you know couldn't find his you know couldn't come into his inheritance in in England and so therefore had no marketable skills no no training of any kind and yes believed that he could come to Virginia and just pick up gold by the wayside um which uh you know lovely delusion of, of the 17th century but what we have with Plymouth is something far less compassionate right that if you are young for example you shouldn't eat as much because you can't contribute as much if you are weak if you are female you should not eat as much you cannot participate in the spoils because you have not been productive enough and um, I would say that that's absolutely something that we still we still, right. it may be um, implicit, but it's certainly
0: still present. Oh, I think it's very much implicit. And and just as a like final, final note, that idea of like the women not contributing as much and things like that, and they don't deserve anything for it. But like, we see that today a lot with, with like stay-at-home moms, right? This idea that uh, their job isn't that hard. They, they're not really contributing much, <laughs> not that special. Like they're not doing much and, and, and this, you know, so they don't deserve a day off or they don't deserve uh, self-care or they or any of this this stuff. It's 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 frowned upon. It's like, ugh, that she she left her husband with the kids so she could go to brunch. Like how irresponsible, you know? And I, I think a lot of it goes back to that. So
1: I, I want to push back just as a final note, right? Like I want to push back yeah. against this idea that you need to deserve anything. Deserving yeah. implies that there's some sort of moral connection between uh having those needs fulfilled. Uh it should be something more like Treat yourself not because you deserve it, but because you need something. That's allowed. You're a human being, and therefore this ought to be available to you, whether or not you believe that you have some sort of moral obligation. Um, yeah, yeah. Work-life balance. Okay. You can edit that out later.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's important. I think it's important to remember, like that. A, a lot of our bad relationship with work-life balance goes back to this like, kind of inherent idea of of worthiness based on how much you. You have accomplished and you know it's that's not a healthy way to, to run society and it's very much an american problem i i it, certainly the work-life balance is a problem in other places uh in the world but you don't see it as much we were talking before the show start before we started recording about like scandinavian uh mm-hmm. cultures right and how th- that is the work-life balance is a little different they have an, a, a different understanding of that and a lot of European countries, they have a different understanding of it. And I think that that goes back a lot to the idea that like, yeah, you're allowed to have vacations. You're allowed to, to take time off. You're allowed to take your paid days off, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas in America, if you do that, it's like, well, you can take your days off, but you shouldn't expect to get a raise or you shouldn't expect to get promoted later because you you dared to take take a week off to go on vacation so you don't burn out. Uh, and that becomes an issue of like of 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 worthiness for for americans
1: i was in a lecture a few weeks ago where um my uh one of the professors who had come in and so, said something like oh you know I'm, I, I plan to read a trashy novel over christmas it's like my guilty pleasure and then she stopped and almost had a conniption it was great to to watch in in real time where she's like wait why did i call that a guilty pleasure what, what do I have to be guilty about? Why is this idea that pleasure must always come at the, uh, the exception, right? Like uh, pleasure must be somehow um, inadmissible to me simply because pleasure is somehow pejorative. Right. And so we watched for a few minutes, this woman just sort of work things out. It was sort of like, I don't know, watching, I've never actually met an experimental physicist, but I imagine that would be something like trying to, you know, quantify some uh, obscure theorem while she was trying to think through it for herself on the spot partly for our benefit, but why, why is it that I believe that this pleasure is somehow guilty? Why have I um, designated one particular joy of my life uh, as being somehow morally negligent? And I thought that was quite beautiful. Um,
0: It's like like watching somebody in real time unpacking the Puritan baggage of our society. It's, it's great. (laughs) Yeah. And that was, it was, it was uh, a
1: marvel. Uh, and she even said, I wonder where that came from. What, what Puritan corner of my brain. Um, did that crawl out of? That, out yes. Where did that come from that I somehow felt, um, you know, disconnected from myself because of my need for pleasure or my, or my maybe desire for pleasure, that that is somehow a moral failure um, that I have,
0: that I must feel guilty about. Thanks a lot, Puritans. Thanks. Thanks <laughs> lots to unpack in our ba- emotional baggage uh there yeah so this was a really great episode thank you so much for coming on i'm sure we could talk for ages more but we can come back on for another episode we'll do we'll do a homeschooling episode it'll be great oh be- and prager don't forget prager and prager we got to work on the prager thing we, we have a we have a file folder titled destroy that's destroying prager so we'll uh we'll, we'll revisit that later definitely um so yeah uh obviously uh post a link for any any areas that uh for any like social media that you're on where would you where can people find you um let's see these days
1: it's mostly tiktok and instagram i have some big projects coming out that i will post that you guys can find and adderall was had by all
0: legally all of us (laughs) it's all legal (laughs) (laughs) have a great day guys Thank you so much for tuning in to hear us bitch about history today. We will definitely be having Elena back in the future because I think between the two of us, we could easily fill like 10, 20 more episodes together, given the length of our average Zoom calls when we find the time to actually talk during our crazy schedules. A reminder that my Kofi account is still accepting donations to support my conference attendance for this year, and anything helps. I just booked my hotel for the Pop Culture Association's National Conference last week, and that was like... and I'm not even staying in the nice conference hotel. So, you know, help me not starve, maybe. And another reminder, Bitchy History Podcast merch is now available through TeePublic instead of Printify. Printify was a nightmare and a half on my end, and it wasn't that user-friendly for my fans either, apparently. I got several complaints about difficulties ordering things. You can find the shop at teepublic.com slash user slash history. There's also a link on the Bitchy History sub-stack if you want to buy merch. There's even a few new pieces of merch out now uh, that were not available on the Printify store, so check that out. I'll see you back here next week for another episode of Bitchy History.